Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. So if you brought your Bible, please open with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm going to do my best to work through this very personal and meaningful passage to me that God has worked in and through me um, here this morning. We're going to be continuing our, our book, our, our, our series through the book of Hebrews. And uh, as you're turning there, let me start with a story. Uh, there's a man and his wife who were searching for their very first home in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. The man was an avid Pittsburgh Pirates fan, and before he was married, he even had season tickets. He stopped purchasing the season tickets and uh, as he was engaged to save for a house. They were looking for a starter home, nothing fancy, uh, in, an, in a historic neighborhood in the surrounding suburbs of Pittsburgh. Well, one afternoon, he and his wife uh, visited a three-bedroom, two-bath house that was built in 1960, and it was on the market for about $240,000. The home was a little out of their price range. Uh, They were kind of wanting in the $200,000 range, but they went and they saw it anyways. And as the man was examining the finished basement, he noticed that there was something unusual in the closet. There was a a little portion of the carpet that was able to be pulled up, and he thought maybe that's intentional that that corner of the carpet could be pulled up. So he's in the basement in the corner of carpet. He pulls up the corner of the carpet, and he sees in this empty, vacant house that was sold on, that was being sold on the market, he opened it, and underneath the carpet, he found a mint condition T206 Honus Wagner baseball card from 1910. There are less than 150 of these cards in production, and that they sell at auctions for roughly the price of $3.12 million. Because the man was an avid Pirates fan, he was able to discern this card is authentic. It's in a, its case, and it's in pristine mint condition. So he slotted the card back underneath the carpet, and in his joy... He told his wife that this house, and he he made sure that the realtor said this house is being sold as is. He took out every penny of his life savings, his wife's life savings, and he purchased the home. The man became the owner of the most valuable baseball card in the history of the world. Whenever we truly value something, We're able to let go of the lesser things in order to attain that which is more valuable. The the author to the Hebrews understands this. And he understands that if we have a better possession through our faith in Christ, we have something that this world cannot offer. And something that is more valuable than anything the world presents. And because he knows this, and because he knows Christ, and he has faith in Christ, and he has the value of the possession in Christ, he knows and he can exhort his listeners to persevere through the loss of potentially even all things. Today's passage is very simple. It has two exhortations uh, that will encourage us to persevere until the end. Now, do you remember the very first date that you ever had with the person who would eventually become your spouse? Do you remember the birth of your first child? Do you remember the joy of opening presents as a child uh, for the very first time? Do you have your earliest memories of opening presents on Christmas morning? Receiving something valuable, experiencing it for the very first time, It should bring you joy. 
I remember uh, continuing on the baseball theme. I remember uh, being six or seven years old, and I remember seeing Comiskey Park, the old Comiskey Park, for the very first time. And I remember walking in and seeing how green the grass was and how perfectly manicured the baseball diamond was. That first joy of, of baseball fandom led me down a path to endure the year-after-year losses of the Chicago White Sox. (laughs) In the previous passage, the, the author to the Hebrews communicated a hard truth. If a person says that they are a Christian, if they verbally profess their faith in Christ, but they continue to live in deliberate sin... There's no longer a sacrifice for them. They've profaned the blood of the covenant and outraged the spirit of grace, as we heard last week. It's a tough teaching. It's a difficult word for us to hear. But sometimes we need very sobering challenges from God's word. But also, we need encouragement. The audience in the day of the author of the Hebrews was writing, the audience was in spiritual danger. From what we can gather from the book, they were lacking confidence to draw near to God boldly through Christ, and they were looking to draw near to God in other older ways that they were more comfortable with. They were wavering in their confession of hope and thinking, you know, maybe hope can be found in other ways outside of Christ. They were making it a habit to neglect the regular meeting of the local church. And last week, the author to the Hebrews, he needed to shoot them straight. He needed to tell them flat out, you're playing with fire. You can't draw near to God through anyone else. There's no confession of hope eternally outside of Christ. There's no means through which you can be saved and stir one another up towards love and good deeds that is outside and apart from the local gathering of the local church outside of Christ. And if you persist in these things, the only thing that awaits is judgment. But, verse 32, to start our message this morning, but, and now he gets personal with them. But recall the former days after you were enlightened. This is just the author of the Hebrews' way of saying, remember the time in your life when you first came to Christ. Remember the joy of receiving Christ for the very first time. Do you remember that season? Oh, I sure do. Oh, I long for the days in which Christ was so real and so present on my heart and my soul that nothing else mattered more than him. Do you remember that season when you first came to Jesus? Do you remember the the joy of knowing your sins are forgiven? Oh, the bliss of knowing I have new life in Christ and in his name. The overwhelming amount of hope, knowing that there's no fear in death, only gain. The glory of knowing I have an eternal reward awaiting for me when I meet Jesus face to face. Do you remember that season? Now I want you, if if you remember that season, I want you to think through how did your friends and your family and your co-workers and those who were close to you, how did they respond when you told them about your newfound faith in Christ? If you were from a Christian family or had a, a faithful local church that you were attending at that time, probably they rejoiced like the angels in heaven. They welcomed you into the new family of God. They celebrated, God did it again. He saved another one. Was that your response? Or did the people who were close to you and close in your life, did they respond like the people who knew the original readers to Hebrews? When the 
audience to the book of Hebrews, the letter written to the Hebrews, when the audience received Christ and experienced Christ for the first time, they weren't warmly welcomed by the surrounding culture. In fact, their faith cost them dearly. They had a joy internally of knowing that Jesus Christ had saved them, that they were on a path toward heaven. But the surrounding world did everything to try to stamp out their newfound faith. Verse 32 continues. You endured a hard struggle with suffering. This tells us how the people responded when they had their new faith found in Christ and they began expressing that new faith to the people whom they loved and cared about in the surrounding culture. They had to stand firm against opposition. They had to endure. The term endure means to stand one's ground. It's a battle metaphor or an athletic metaphor of finishing the race of endurance. Then the term struggle means a conflict or a battle or a contest. They struggled. The phrase is used by the author to help them remember how much external opposition they faced when they first came to Christ. It was not a walk in the park for the first century believers. Verse 33 continues in this vein. And sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. Verse 33 makes the suffering they experienced detailed. Publicly exposed to reproach. It's being verbally slandered or insulted. They go public with their faith. They tell about their new joy that they have found in the eternal life and hope in Jesus Christ. They tell people about their confession of their hope in Jesus Christ. And they were mocked and insulted. They were slandered and verbally abused. That's how they were met. Calls to mind Psalm 69 verse 7. The insults of those who insult you have fallen upon me. They were publicly exposed to afflictions. Afflictions means physical violence against them. They they suffered cruelty, which may have included imprisonment, beatings, potentially even deprivation. Most likely, this violent pressure was put on them so that they would give up their beliefs. They would deter them from sharing their hope that they have found in Christ. If you keep talking about that person named Jesus, we will continue to insult and beat you. You need to stop talking in that name and you need to stop doing it now was the message they received from the outside culture, both verbally through insults and physically through beatings and imprisonment. The author also makes sure to, show, to highlight their solidarity that they had with others, describing their fellowship with other believers who were being insulted and persecuted. They didn't shy away from identifying with the sufferings of their brothers and sisters. Sometimes being partners, that's fellowship. Being in fellowship with those who were being insulted. You remember What it was like when the bully on the playground in grade school begins insulting one of the weak kids. What do you want to do? You want to back away as far as you can and so that the bully doesn't turn on you. But rather, in the Christian's sake in the first century, when the bullies began to say to the Christians, don't speak in that name, rather than shy away, they went along and said, no, this is my brother. I'm with him as he is or she is being insulted were beaten. They expressed solidarity and fellowship with one another. Verse 34 describes particularly how they fellowshiped. For you had compassion on those in prison. The believers were in jail for their faith, trying to stamp out this new religious movement of the gospel being spread, trying to stamp it out 
violently through throwing Christians in jail. And believers said, well, okay, you're going to throw them in jail. We're going to have compassion on them. We're going to care for them. We're going to raise up a benevolence fund and we are going to pool our money so that we could go and provide them with food and clothing and assistance and care while they are in prison. They sought active ways to demonstrate their compassion for the suffering believers. And this brought consequences to them. It was costly for them to care for their brothers and sisters in prison. It was costly financially to pool their money together to provide for for them in very tangible ways. And it cost them personally. By caring for the other believers in prison, they were also, they themselves, going public with their faith. And they were exposing themselves to the destruction of their personal belongings and to other intimidation tactics by the surrounding culture. Verse 34 continues. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Imagine your most prized earthly possession in your home. Your new entertainment set. Your new golf clubs. Your new set of skis. Your brand new motorcycle. Your bomber jacket that you got from serving. Your most prized and valued earthly possession. Ransacked, pillaged, and destroyed because you took a pot pie to George who was in prison. You get home from taking food to your believers who, to your fellow believers who are in jail because of their faith. And your whole kitchen is destroyed. A sledgehammer take out your range. A chainsaw going straight through your refrigerator and your countertops. And yet, what does the text say that they, how, what their disposition was as this was happening to their most prized earthly possessions? What was their attitude and what was their disposition as this was happening to all of their valuables being ransacked and pillaged? They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Why could they do this joyfully? None of us in this room would do this joyfully. I love you guys, but I know you, and none of you would accept this joyfully. We would not simply, we would not come home and say, sweet, my pair of skis that I've saved for three years to get the exact and precise bindings and measurements and and skis so that I can go do exactly the type of skiing that I like to do that provides my soul with a measure of refreshment are now gone because George needed a pot pie. I wouldn't accept this joyfully if I'm, if I'm doing an honest assessment in my own soul right now. Yet the new believers in the first century, in the audience of the Hebrews, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Why could they do this? What gave them the power for their soul to receive this terrible thing that happens to them at the hands of evildoers, how can they do that with joy? The text tells us. The text tells us exactly why. No ambiguity. What what was the source of their joy? Verse 34, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you hear that? There is something greater than this world that even if all else is taken away from this world, the believer in Christ has a better and an abiding possession, something that no one can take away. 
The power to persevere with joy through the plundering of your property is found in the better and abiding possession that every single believer, man, woman, or child, has found firmly through the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. An engagement ring. How many of us, have, don't raise your hands, but many of us married couples have engagement rings. I don't have an engagement ring. Andrea has an engagement ring. An engagement ring is a great possession. It's a valuable possession. Most engagement rings have diamonds, maybe gold or white gold or platinum. They're, they're valuable possessions. But you know what's more valuable than an engagement ring or a wedding ring? The marriage itself, amen? And in married people, if you don't answer yes, you are getting, a, you're getting an, an elbow to the ribs. Marriage is much more valuable than the engagement ring. A good, healthy, strong marriage can withstand the loss of an engagement ring. Sure, the ring is gone, but the marriage still remains intact. You can take away all the rings and all the jewelry. We still have a marriage. But the meaning of the engagement ring can't withstand the loss of your marriage. If you lose the marriage and you're still wearing the engagement ring, that engagement ring is meaningless. It's, value, it's valueless other than the money that you could receive from pawning it. If you lose your marriage, you lose the value of both the marriage and the engagement ring. When a person gets married, they cut off or, or sacrifice all other romantic relationships to pledge themselves wholly, completely unto their spouse. And Every single married person in this room should say that when they make that sacrifice, they do so joyfully and not begrudgingly. If not, you should have had me for premarital counseling, and I never would have officiated your wedding. We can suffer in the similar fashion. We can suffer the loss of worldly things with joy. Because we know we have a better and an abiding possession through our relationship to God in Christ. So before I go any further, let me just ask you a very honest question. What has your faith in Christ cost you? What has it cost you? If you're in a marriage, you cut off all other romantic relationships. That's the cost of being a married person. What has your faith in Christ cost you? What can you look back upon your life and, and say, you know what? I would have this and this and this if I, if I weren't a Christian. Now, the question isn't designed to puff you up with pride to say, well, I would be a doctor and a lawyer and I'd live in a mansion and I'd be the president of the United States and I'd be a conqueror of the world, but I'm a Christian, so I've given all of that for the name of Jesus, it's not supposed to puff you up with pride. And if you can't think of something that you've sacrificed for the sake of Christ or joyfully because you are a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. But it probably means that your faith hasn't been significantly tested yet. Because it is through the loss of earthly and worldly things that we find if our faith is real or superficial. We see this as people, and we've seen it recently, many times over the course of the last years, many of our beloved congregation members are heading towards their death. They're going to lose everything of this world. And it becomes crystal clear where their hope is. And thankfully, joyfully, we've had testimony after testimony of Stanton Gillen and Carl Willman 
and Margot Ball joyfully say, I'm ready to forsake all worldly things to be in the presence of my Savior. It's through the loss of all other things that we find if our faith is real or simply superficial. If we can't handle losing worldly possessions, if we can't handle the loss of esteem in the eyes of others, if we can't handle the loss of worldly comforts, our faith may not be in Christ but in something else. Here's a more personal question that John Piper asked recently. He said, would you still be a Christian if it meant multiple sufferings? No let up until death. No season of ease at the end. Trouble all the way, then your reward. Would you still be a Christian? This was the question that the reader to the Hebrew, that the author to the Hebrews was posing to his readers. And now I want to pose it to you. Would you still be a Christian if you knew that your faith was going to cause you tremendous and continual suffering and loss until your promotion to glory? Would Jesus still be a better and abiding possession? Remember the joy that you had when you first came to Christ. Remember that. And latch on to that joy, that hope, that faith that you first had. Because that small, childlike grasp of your possession of eternal life through Jesus Christ, that small grasp is more powerful than anything that the world can try to do to pull you away from Christ. Remember how sweet it was to worship Christ during that season with your brothers and sister. Remember how joyful it is to know your sins are forgiven and that God has adopted you into his family forever. This leads to the second command of the passage, retain confidence in Christ to the end. The author puts it negatively in verse 5. If this is true, if you are to recall the former days, if you were to remember your hard struggle uh, when you first came to Christ and allow for that to fuel your perseverance, if that is true, if that is the command, therefore, verse 35, don't, do not throw away your confidence. Do not throw away your confidence. What is the confidence of the Christian? We, we've talked through this in the book of Hebrews. Confidence in the Christian, Christian is your possession of faith in Christ. He's your confidence. We have confidence. We obtain confidence. We possess confidence because the possession of our faith is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We have confidence because Christ is our high priest, because Christ has offered a better sacrifice for all of our sin than anyone else. And we have confidence to come before God because of all that he has done for us. And that's why the author says, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't throw away your confidence for something lesser when your confidence will bring you before God, the greatest reward that anyone could ever imagine. Waiting at the end of a believer's race to Christ and for Christ because of what Christ has done, is a great reward for every believer who perseveres to the end. Not because you have persevered in your own strength or you've obeyed the law perfectly unto yourself, but because your race was earned and purchased and persevered through by your great and merciful high priest, Christ himself. If a person remains in Christ, perseveres to the end, their eternal reward is Christ himself forever.
And if that doesn't thrill your soul, you may not know him. If that doesn't thrill your soul to be in the presence of Jesus forever, you might not know him. If your longing for the afterlife is for streets of gold and for a new body without pain or sickness or disease, all those wonderful benefits of the new heavens and new earth, but you could give or take Jesus, you don't know Jesus. And yes, because you know Jesus and because you have come to Jesus, all of that stuff, no sickness, no disease, no death, streets paved with gold, all of that stuff comes with Jesus. The essential, irreplaceable aspect of heaven is that's where Jesus dwells, with his people forever. So what does this mean for Christians now? It means that Christians need to endure Christians need to stand firm in the face of opposition. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The Christian must not cave to the pressures of this world and to the appeal of our sinful flesh or to the subtle deceptions of the evil one and throw away their confidence. Christians need to endure, to stand firm and to not give in. God has a will for his, for his people in general and every individual one of his persons that he has saved. Christians should not toss this aside when the tough times hit. Suffering, loss is not a mark of being a bad Christian. In many cases, suffering loss is the result of a Christian who is doing the will of God. And in the end, this, the author of the Hebrews wants to hammer this home as hard as he possibly can and as deep into the soul of believers as is possible. In the end, it is worth it. Endure. Verse 37, verse 38, he quotes Old Testament promises that are now fulfilled in Christ. He begins with a reference to Isaiah on chapter 26, verse 20, he says, Yet in a little while, the coming one will come, and he will not delay. This uh, Isaiah context is the highlight that on God's timetable, he's coming soon. In comparison to eternity, his return and the consummation of all things, it's in just a little while. I don't care if you were living in Isaiah's day, hundreds of years before Christ, or if you're here in Reno, 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, his return is coming soon. Think about it in this way. The very most that anyone in this room will ever have to wait to meet the Lord face to face the longest that any person in this room has to wait to meet Jesus face-to-face, personally, physically, visibly, spiritually. The very longest that anybody needs to wait is their lifetime. That's it. What is 80 or 90 years in light of billions and billions and billions? It's nothing. Steve's a math guy. He'll tell you it's nothing. 80 or 90 is nothing in comparison to infinity. I'm not a math guy, and I even know that. It's a blip. And this should give the Christian hope and endurance through suffering. Suffering before the consummation of all things is temporary. All suffering is temporary. All of it. Christians can endure suffering because all suffering is short and temporary in light of the glory of eternity. It will finish soon. It will be done sometime very soon. Now, my, my children are at the age where uh, they can benefit now from learning the, the proper techniques of exercise. Uh, so Andrew and I have been working with them, teaching them how to endure through strenuous exercises until the end. So uh, have you ever seen those like six inch leg lifts that are supposed to like work your abdominals or your core muscles? You, you're laying on your back and you lift your legs just six inches above the ground. And it's just six inches, but gravity like has its force to like pull on your abs like seven times the weight of gravity, it seems, as you're doing it. 
because it's just strenuous and it hurts your abs a ton when you're doing when you're doing that. You feel you feel the force of gravity just pulling down those legs for every single second that that you're up six inches off of the ground. But the exercise gets so much easier when you lift the legs six inches and you think to yourself, I just got to make it 10 more seconds. Just got to make it 10 more seconds. When you lift the legs and you, you feel, when you lift your legs and you feel the force of, of gravity pulling down upon your legs and you're, everything inside of your abs are screaming, I just, I just gotta, I just gotta put my legs down. This is too hard. It's too tough. The exercise gets easier after you fight through the first 10 seconds. So we've taught our kids, when you start doing it, just count to 10. You can make it 10 seconds. Just 10 seconds. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Simple. You got that, right? Oh, but we need the exercise calls us to do that for an entire minute. Okay, so count to ten again. You can make another ten seconds, can't you? And eventually, once they get towards the, the minute was up, oh, that was not as difficult as it first initially felt. And they make it through the exercise. This is what God is doing with his people and the prophet Isaiah. Like, it's just a little while. It's just your lifetime. Uh, just a little while. I'm going to come back and you're going to have full relief. Everything is going to be right. It's just a little while. Just hang in there a little bit longer. It's not to minimize the pain or minimize the suffering. It's to glorify eternity and to show you what is much more valuable than the short little segments of your lifetime. Just a little decade. It's just a little generation. It's just a short little lifetime. You can make it. The coming one will come and will not delay. And then the author quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my, my soul has no pleasure in him. This quotation from Habakkuk is used in a few very important places in the New Testament to clarify the glorious New Testament doctrine of justification by faith. How a person is right before God. Is a person right by obedience to the law? as adherence to the law or by faith. And the New Testament could not be more clear based upon this, the exposition of this particular passage of Holy Scripture. The righteous shall live by faith. No one is justified before God through the law. Romans 1.17 quotes this line, just the portion, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther meditated upon it for years and the verse sparked the, the, the reformation of the church. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, this verse is then quoted to teach that no one is justified before God through observance of the law or meritorious works of the law. And quotes this line again, the righteous shall live by faith. Justification by faith is a central theme of the entire New Testament, and it's an essential aspect of the gospel with which if you were to take it, this part of the gospel away, you have no gospel. But this is not the author to the Hebrews' focus of using this passage. The author of the Hebrews wants to stress the persevering power of faith. The righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In other words, there is no other way to please God than persevering faith. There's no confidence before God unless one approaches God by faith through the sacrifice of our high priest, Jesus Christ. And if a person throws away that confidence, shrinks back from their faith, tries to come before God through any other means, there is no confidence. There is no hope. Because you are throwing away the only reward, eternal reward that Christ has earned for his people. The author writes this as an encouragement to his readers. 
to persevere. You have possessed faith. This faith is powerful enough so that you never need to shrink back for your entire little short little lifetime that you have to persevere. And once he returns, perseverance is no longer necessary because only obedience is possible because sin will be extinguished and done away with. And then he leaves, he closes the chapter, the thought, in verse 39, with a word of encouragement. And let this land on your soul. Personalize this passage. Let it be as if the author to the Hebrews is speaking directly to your soul. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's not who we are. That's not our identification. That's not what our faith has taught us and what our faith has possessed us to do and to be. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. You're going to make it, Christian. You're going to make it just a little while longer. Now, modern medicine is such a gift to the world We have cures for diseases that have killed millions of people throughout the history of humans. But as wonderful as modern medicine is, the best doctors in the world would never tell a patient, oh, you have a broken foot? Here's a bottle of painkillers. They're going to make all of the pain go away. Go ahead and do whatever you want. No doctor worth his board certification would ever Give a patient with a broken foot a bottle of painkillers. It will make the pain go away. You can go back, play some basketball. You can do your athletic activities on your broken foot because you've got the painkiller that's telling your mind nothing's wrong. No doctor would say that. Why? Because it subverts the healing process. And I'm not going to prescribe how to treat a broken foot from the pulpit. But I will say... In that moment, with our broken foot, we should trust our doctor's orders. Wear the cast if he says that or she says that. Stay off of the broken foot. Let the healing process run its course. Don't just take more painkillers and continue on with your life. The problem with perseverance that we face is is awfully similar to this situation. As soon as suffering occurs... We desire the pain to go away so fast and so quickly that we rely upon spiritual painkillers rather than our doctor's orders of perseverance. And this is how many Christians throw away their confidence and shrink back and are destroyed. We spiritually medicate ourselves when we do things that make our temporary pain go away and we don't permit the full healing process of persevering faith to run its course in our life. And I've just jotted down a couple of ways in which we spiritually medicate ourselves and I want us to to really wrestle with these and, and ask God to remove them from our lives so we don't rely upon spiritual painkillers and subvert the healing process that God desires to bring about through persevering faith. So here are five ways that we tend to throw away our confidence in Christ by medicating with spiritual painkillers only. First, one of the ways in which we throw away our confidence in Christ is by cherishing someone or something more than Christ saying we have a better possession than Christ. We have a more abiding possession than Christ in my golf swing or in my family or in my career or in any other thing. Following Jesus is hard, so I'm just going to bury myself in my work. My faith is causing me difficulties in my family and in my marriage, so I'm going to pour all of my energy into family vacations and getaways on the weekend because maybe that will make our family feel better rather than me continuing to bring up and talk about Jesus. And the second way we, we tend to medicate ourselves, make the spiritual pain go away, is when we allow unresolved sin to fester. Rather than working through sin that exists between two Christians, 
we can bury it, pretend it doesn't exist. But if sin isn't dealt with through persevering faith in God and in his word that prescribes for us how to deal with sin, it's going to spring up later in a whole host of envy and bitterness and divisiveness and sinful acts of anger. We medicate ourselves spiritually by burying, allowing unresolved sin to fester and burying it rather than dealing with it appropriately. Thirdly, we tend to throw away our confidence in Christ that comes through persevering faith by numbing our spiritual ache in our soul with substitutes that cannot last for eternity. Replace your faith in Christ for salvation with a workout plan for your health. Replace your joy in Christ with the joy of your hobby. Replace your hope in Christ and in his eventual kingdom coming with the hope of your political party having power. Replace your love for Christ and your devotion to him with your love and devotion to anyone or anything else. Like a painkiller, it will make your spiritual, it will satisfy your spiritual ache temporarily. It will make you feel good in the moment. Yes, my partisan person won. Yes. Oh, I get to see that person again. Oh, the joy. I get to do this as a hobby. This is so much fun. It will thrill. It will quench your spiritual ache temporarily. The Bible calls this the fleeting pleasures of sin. Fourth way in which we tend to numb ourselves, tend to throw away our confidence in our in Christ, is to just bail on the local church. Well, there's so much wrong with the local church, and the local church falls so, so far short of God's standards. I'm just going to bail on the institution altogether. The way to kill the pain of suffering for the sake of Christ that it produces through the the faithful participation with the local church, let's just abandon church altogether or redefine it in a way that suits my spiritual tastes. I won't hammer this home in the same way that we did a few weeks ago, but I I will say this. The pandemic revealed just how shallow our view of the local church is. I was just disgusted by how many self-professing Christians all across the nation were just so okay with, all right, we're just abandoning getting together for who knows how long. We'll just stop. Not only okay with it, but like encouraging it. This is what God wants us to do. Are you reading the same Bible as me? And I'm not saying we didn't need to do things to be creative and to minister in new and and, and creative ways to meet the needs during a very unique time in the history of our world. But we... We simply cannot bail on the local church when times get rough. In fact, it's written in the scriptures so that we don't bail away from God and his local church when times get rough, but we run to the local church and to God when times get rough. And lastly, fifthly, the fifth way to numb your spiritual pain, especially today, And it's probably been true throughout all of human history, but the access to it is just so prevalent. The fifth way to numb our spiritual pain for Christ is just endlessly distracting ourselves with media. From podcasts, talk radio, to video games, sports, talk, a thousand different other forms of media can drown out the call of Christ to follow him in obedience and discipleship. Being consumed with the intake of more and more digital or analog content 
makes the pain of our suffering much more tolerable for a while. But it's only the voice of Jesus calling us to persevere in our faith that will truly heal and satisfy our souls forever. The antidote to throwing away our confidence in these ways is retaining our confidence in Christ until the end. We, when we hold fast to Christ, when we persevere in our faith, we will find that the source of our faith is persevering in and through us. He himself is holding fast to us as we are holding fast to him. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the very first time, please pray with one of our elders at the conclusion of the, of the service today. If you have already received Christ and you're going through a suffering and a difficult time and it does not make sense to you, that's okay. We are here for you and want to pray with you. And you can pray with one of our elders at the conclusion of this service. But brothers and sisters, struggling, suffering or not, do not throw away your confidence and hope. For great is our reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful for your spirit and your work and your word. Help us be a people who do not abandon our call to follow you by faith, to trust in you entirely for the salvation of our souls, to persevere until the end. God, I... There's no possible way for me to know the struggles and the opposition of each and every person in this room, but I know that you do. And I know that your spirit is present when your people gather. I know that your spirit desires to minister to people in this room who are suffering and struggling and give them joy through it. So I pray now, God, by your spirit, that your spirit would pour into our hearts joy through suffering so that we might persevere into the end. God, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.